everyone, and welcome to the Clone Star Podcast. I'm your host, Show Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Sean Ferrick. Each week, we will pick five of our favourite episodes from each Star Trek season. So come join us, beam aboard, and let's fly. and welcome back to the clone star podcast i'm show hurley your host and i am sean apparently asleep at the wheel <laughs> every week we have to work on that we, we, we really do i was so hard <laughs> concentrating that i anyway hi show sean happy new year to you um we've got over, we've, we've gotten over the christmas break actually it's one thing isn't it has there ever actually been an episode of star trek that contained the transition into a new year um well technically time's arrow uh it was just an old year we went from 2366 i think back to 1893 uh um, yes we had sorry if the question was have we done new years in star trek the answer is no the 1159 in Voyager, did that not contain a new year in it? I think you might be right. Oh, and I like that episode. That was one of my picks for uh, favorite. It episodes. was, yeah, that's why. I, yeah. There I go, wait a second. This is a bit I've of I've never one. watched Star Trek. <laughs> um, hold on, hold on. Da, 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 da. Yep. 11.59 p.m., December 31st. Huh. There we go now. See Isn't now. It's... Slapping the balls. Uh, especially for somebody who picked the episode as one of their favorite, uh, as one of their episodes that they enjoyed watching. Um, so, Sean, we're doing a bit of a change uh, this week since we have discussed episodes. We've discussed movies, but now we're going to decide on five characters that we both like. Excellent. And as usual, I have no idea what you've picked. You have no idea what I picked. Although, if you've listened to this podcast, you absolutely know one million percent one of my picks anyway. Um, yes, 100%. The Gorn really was a character that was extremely well fleshed out. Um, so what were I scaled out? I was going to say that, but I said, no, that's going to literally fall completely off a cliff. Um, <laughs> Sean, I'm curious now what you're going to go with. I really am because I'm kind of there going to hope it doesn't really pick anyone that I picked because there's about 800 million characters in all of Star Trek, and they're going, we're going to at least copy over at least one, I'm certain of it. Well, considering I'm going first, I know yes. I'm going to pick one of yours because everyone who's listening to me speak knows what one of my picks is going to be. So I'm doing it first to get it out of the way. And it's, it's, it's obviously Garrick. Yeah. Like, of course it's Garrick. I picked six characters because I said I know one of them is going to be cr- so right. That's fine. I'm Good. I'm removing I'm removing Garrick from my list as we speak. Cool. Absolutely. I was Absolutely. in my head. I was there going. He's going to pick Garrick or Gul Dukat, and I said he's going to pick Dukat. I said I bet he's going to pick Dukat, and I'm going to pick Have Garrick. You ever spoken to me? Yes, I have, but I figured you'd pick Dukat. I, I am I Garrick. Like, that's who I am. I am the sexually ambiguous tailor. Except I just wear the clothes. I don't make them. Okay, talk to me about Garrick. Uh, he's pretty cool. So who's your first pick? No. Um, Garrick is the <laughs> single most interesting character in all of Star Trek. Yes. There we go. I'm just going to... It's easy. More so than... 
I won't I won't do a compare and compare compare. There's there's so many interesting characters in all the Star Trek, but I think Garrick comes with the most mystery, the most intrigue, and he's not safe. Spock is safe. Spock would be an easy other pick for most interesting character, you know? Yeah. Uh, or even Captain Picard. But these are safe characters because you know that deep down those characters are good. You know, they they have, you know, the good of the many, obviously, at their core of being. We don't mm. know that about Garrick. And we no. never have. Nor has he ever claimed to be anything other than he is Machiavelli's the prince on the screen. That is what he is. From his very first appearance, which has been memed to death, but I think it's it's such an because it's it's so overtly performative. His mm. very first appearance in past prologue, where there is that obviously that scene, you know, the you know the hands on Bashir's shoulders. Of course, that's a little bit late in the episode, but still, that's the overall his first appearance, and you know this he is completely toying with Bashir he is clearly coming on to the man confirmed by Andrew Robinson himself and but that was so not important to his character the sexuality was Mm. not what that sexuality was you know he is a he is a hunter Uh, he is also a protector he is ruthless to an extreme, mm-hmm. but he's not unfeeling. Yeah. You know, one of the best examples of that is Improbable Cause the Die is Cast. He wants to impress, spoiler, his father by taking on the interrogation of Odo, and the interrogation of Odo breaks him because. And that's not- a very awkward scene to watch as well, isn't it? Because, like, you don't think he's going to do it, you don't think he's going to interrogate Odo. And then when you see Odo basically falling apart in front of him, like, and all that, like, it's 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 actually uncomfortable. But I suppose DS9 was great for just committing to doing things like that. And I think with, with Garrick as well, he really comes into his own in the second season of DS9. You kind of got the feeling in the first season they weren't fully sure what to do with him. But in episodes like The Wire and Cardassians in the second season, like The Wire especially, obviously, like you start to, you know, bits and pieces start to come out. Like it's so funny. Even when he's presented with absolute fact, he'll still find a way to get around it and kind of go, yeah, no, that's still not the truth. No, I I completely agree. Um, or he will be, he's one of those people that will be like, that may be your truth. Doesn't make it the truth. Um, and you know, he deals in shadows and right up until quite a late, late in the day hour, he maintains that no, I was, you know, I worked as a gardener on Romulus, you know, I was this, I was that, I was not mm. these things that we all know he was, but he didn't doesn't confirm it until quite late in the day. And actually, it takes almost six full seasons for him. Not anybody else, but him to really state, you know, his character on screen. And it's that fantastic ending to In the Pale Moonlight. And obviously, incredible episode, complete acting toward the force across the board. And after Renix Shuttle does what it does, and, and, you know, and after all that, and Cisco straight in, you know, to Garrick's shop, hilariously uh, you know not to poke holes in that episode but one of the only times the door is closed handy you know walks in 
backhands Garrick and, you know, it's kind of, you know, Avery Brooks has called a punch here. You, you submit. You absolutely submit right now. No. Garrick puts him to task and says, that's why you came to me. Yeah. Because I could do those things that you couldn't do. And we have this wonderful exchange. And Garrick just continues to win in this little sad, you know, solitary existence that he, you know, inhabits. He maintains the master of his own domain. And when our quote unquote good characters enter that domain, they are so off balance straight away. But but the thing is when you watch that episode of the Pale Moonlight, when you know Cisco goes to Garrick for help, we as the audience, we know full well kind of they're going like you are dancing with the devil here like Garrick is bad like and you know that and you're kind of in your head going like does Cisco realize that that basically Garrick is going to do whatever the hell needs to be done and then you know when that confrontation happens and Garrick just says to him part of you is waiting for Cisco to keep you know as a good guy to deny it and Cisco just doesn't because Cisco deep down knows that's exactly what it is and that's it makes the kind of this, the thing's so powerful, but what's, what's great with Garrick is, is that it's intrigue, it's badness, and it's mixed with humor as well. Mm. Because, like, they're like in way of the warrior, like, after the Klingons beat him up and he's getting treated by Dr. Dr. Bashir, <laughs> you know, Dr. Bashir gives the list of injuries, you know, they've broken this, they've broken that. And Garrick's response is, but I got off some cutting remarks, which you know that scarred him for lifetime. And it's absolutely hilarious. It's brilliant how just how well he does it like. Well, let me guess. You're either lost or desperately in need of a good tailor. He, and man- it's just... he manages to play camp without it being, you know, carnival, without it being pantomime. You know, he, yes. he and it's not easy to do that because it's so simple to fall into, you know, tired tropes. And, you know, perhaps, although I don't agree with a lot of uh, particularly Rick Berman's input in Deep Space Nine, it became a much stronger show when Iris Stephen Bear took over as EP. But yeah. one of the things he said was, you know, dial back the sexuality thing there, will you? And I have to say, I see the point because that could have fallen into pantomime. And I think what they yep. did with the character, specifically what Andrew Robinson did with the character, was keep it within the realms of playing it straight, for pardon the pun, but also not. I was I was recently at Destination Star Trek where Andrew Robinson was a guest, and we, the question was put to him, how much input did you have on the character? And he just kind of laughed and says, you, you, we didn't. You know, we, we didn't get any input on the script. We could only play it how we interpreted it. Yeah. So the interpretation of Garrick on screen, although he didn't write the dialogue, he didn't write the backstory, although put a pin in that one, um, he could only play it with whatever frustration, humour or enjoyment that he got from reading the scripts every week. And I thought that was really, really interesting because even now, like I'm, I'm an old haggard man and i'm still learning many many things about the industry for example you know you hear about these collaborative affairs and you know you could oh you know they were really really okay with you know having input on the script and apparently no that did not go on deep space nine at all it was you shut the up you would give you the pages and you show up yeah you know which was interesting because it's such a strong show uh, i say put a pin in you can tell i've thought this in my head but put a pin in is just because 
the novel published by Simon and Schuster, and I'm naming them for a reason, A Stitch in Time, was written uh-huh. by Andrew Robinson. It was expanded from his own notes that he kept and used to fill in the blanks. So while he never wrote any dialogue, he yeah. did help to expand the story a little bit. Now, I'm naming Simon and Schuster there because allegedly, according to Andrew Robinson, they have been very, very difficult when it comes to putting the audiobook out because he's asked quite frequently, when are you going to do an audiobook? And he's like, I really want to. Simon & Schuster apparently don't. Oh, that's very strange. Yeah. Simon & Schuster were so good at doing the audiobooks for so many years. That's a bit of an odd one. Like, it's just... Like, with... Actually, one of my favourite Garrick lines, now I'm probably going to quote this wrong, of course, is, I think it's at the end of The Wire, is it? When... You you'll correct me when I'm going through this. When he says to Garrick how much of it was true, and he says all of it, and then he says, including the lies, and then Garrick says, especially the lies. Mm. And like it's just it it's all a complete mystery, isn't it? Like, and I remember a couple of months back, I was going back through a lot of DS9, and I just decided I was gonna watch a load of episodes up to do with Cardassia. So I watched like the wired Cardassians, the probable cause and desire's cast. I was just there going, it's so bloody, it's so intriguing, like, and everything to do with Cardassians, like, because none of it made sense. And it was all, you were there going, man's not a goddamn tailor. He's something much more, much bigger than this. And I'm delighted that they dragged it out as long as they did. Dragged might be the right term, but you know what I mean? That they, that they didn't give it to you all very quickly, that it was slowly revealed over the course of years for you to kind of really kind of get into it like that's it like um and only for the fear of we could do an entire episode on garrick um i'll just say amazing i would be very interested to see if he was to return in some way i wouldn't know where you'd fit him in he would probably fit in lower decks no problem um Mm. i would potentially avoid picard because there's enough dubiously gray characters there uh (laughs) great um, or uh, or have him as a holographic representation in disco. I'm fine with that as well. Like, mm. show. Okay, so who's one of your five? We know who your sixth was. Who's one of your five <laughs> characters? Um, look, I'm going to start that with the most obvious one of all, and it is going to be Leonard Nimoy's Spock. I'm not going to include Zachary Quinto's uh, Spock or Ethan <gasps> Peck's Spock. Um, I'm only going to be including Leonard Nimoy's Spock because for me, it is Gatekeeper. the greatest character. <laughs> I'm I, kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, well, I, 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 I get, what I'll do is I'll bring one of my picks forward now to my next pick after this. <laughs> this is a direct countenance to what you just said there. Um, look, Leonard Nimoy's Spock is, you know, one of the things that completely got everyone to believe in the original series and things like that. Like, the, you know, like kind of to have in 1966 an alien character that was so relatable but so different at the same time to have someone who is full of emotions but controls it and as a result then to us that's completely unique and it's something that you know we haven't come across and things like that it's the man himself Leonard Nimoy how he interpreted the character how he treated the character, how he treated the show with so much respect and kind of reverence and how he wanted to make sure that how he worked, you know, within how he acted for the character and thing like that, that it was all about making it as professional as possible. Me and you have spoken before about like the state of science fiction in the 1960s. 
and what it was like and why Star Trek succeeded in the way that it did. And like when you think of it in say the enemy within and things like that about you know Spock was supposed to you know punch the evil Captain Kirk and all this and Leonard Nimoy wanted to do something different and then you know the Vulcan neck pinch kind of you know grew out of that the same with the you know the mind melt and things like that it was just so it was so interesting and like when you look like it was funny when I was younger I actually didn't like the character of Spock I didn't like him at all and I was kind of there going oh it's always Spock this and Spock that and Spock the other thing and all that and then I started getting older and I was there going, oh, Jesus, wait a second. The character is absolutely bloody brilliant. Like it was just so much of, you know, because you'd see this problem. It would happen, whatever. And everyone would have their own say. But then we'd come to Spock and the Spock always knew what to say, how to say it, what needed to be said. And kind of, you know, how to get just the most logical solution to the problem. Like, and I think, you know, as we as people get older it's something that we can all kind of adopt into our lives in terms of just slowing down taking the emotion out of it working with the logic of the situation and kind of you know moving forward like and you see as well even with the movies as well like how protective leonard Nimoy was of the character in the movies and like even being in the movies was kind of what is the point of me being here like what what the spot like it's funny he was it's no one else had that kind of part of it because like you know, like the the movies were Kirk and Spock in the same way the series was. You know, the rest of them were just kind of along for the ride, and that was fine. And like Shatner was going to come on board, irrespective, because then he was the leading man. He was a you know movie star and all that. But with Leonard Nimoy, really was like, what has Spock got to do with this? And like, no one protected the character in the series as much as Leonard Nimoy did with it. And and you look back at some of Star Trek's best episodes, and we've done this recently, like so many of them come back to how well Spock is in all the episodes. Um, like, our revisit of the original series that we've recently done, it, it just goes to show how quickly the characters were defined. And because we talked about this a lot, um, you know, how things have fallen into both parody, but also they've fallen into almost legend. You know, Spock mm. has always been this, Spock has always been that. But in a way, of all the characters, he kind of has been the most consistent all the way through because Leonard Nimoy basically hit the ground running from about episode three. Yep. Um, now, you know, the cage was it was a different character-ish. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, and where no man has gone before, much closer to what Spock would become. Then... When you then look all the way up until, I suppose, unification, really, but certainly up until Undiscovered Country, you get the gradual easing into it. And I mean, gradual, it's quite a few years between <laughs> the man trap and, you know, the Undiscovered Country. But this easing into comfort, say, of being able to not, you know, show emotion in the way that Kirk shows emotion, but, you know, with a raised eyebrow, he yep. can do more than the most stereotypical Kirk outburst. And I mean stereotypical, as, as I will now defend William Shatner an awful lot more than I would have mm. before I rewatch. Um, and yet, in a way, Spock was before our time. You know, we when we came to Star Trek, it would have been late 80s, sorry, late 70s for yourself, late 80s for <laughs> myself. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, you know, but certainly late 80s, early 90s, right? So 
you know, I was well aware of who Spock was, but the next gen was my, you know, my trek, uh, my yeah. gateway trek. And Data was my gateway Spock. And yet seeing the two of them together as well was just like, oh, yeah, now Spock's the OG. And even I felt oh, that back then, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, Sean, look, in fairness, we, we spoke about Leonard Nimoy Spock about a million times when we were discussing the original series of movies. So, look, Spock is my favourite character of all time. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So, one each, who's your next pick? I swear um, to God, don't don't pick one of the characters I've picked, would you? Okay, so I need to ask, can I discuss Dal from Star Trek Prodigy? You can. Okay, and I'll do it as... Why did, you ask me? Why did you because ask me? Because I don't me know if you've seen Prodigy. All right, I've seen bits of it, yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Dal. Now, I'm going to break the rules straight away. Dal is by no means one of my favourite characters in Star Trek. Not even remotely. However. However. So, Dal is sort of our male lead in Discovery, yes. right? Um, and Gwyn being our female lead. And... Um, it's it's so we've only had five episodes so far. The next episode returns next week, uh, as as of recording. Sorry, a couple of days after the release of this episode, right? And I think it's really really interesting that what they're doing in Discovery through Dal is an exploration strategy, not Discovery. Oh yeah, okay, right. Uh, sorry, yes, I do mean Prodigy, and I will explain my Freudian slip now in a moment. Um, yes. So what they're doing in Prodigy through Dal is an exploration of trauma adolescent discovery sorry is dealing with trauma adult this season nice that's what i mean so um and because dal is insufferable for four out of five episodes so you're kind of thinking sean what an interesting pick for this week's uh for this week's character list but yeah because I, I i told you on it when i watched the first episode dal and night the hell out of me right until episode four i was just like Mm. Mm. No, I'm, 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 I'm struggling now with this character. And then we got episode five, and it's not like it saves everything. Yeah. But his walls came down a little bit, and that was so important because one-dimensional characters in Star Trek tend to be forgotten, right? Because they'll come along. I, I'm sure there's so many exceptions to, exceptions to the rule, but the problem is that they don't stand the test of time the way the Picards, the Spocks. You know all that the, all they do you know and dal was really running the risk of all right he's just gonna be so he's annoying yet cool kid no we get a little bit of a break himself and gwyn share a moment in episode five that has just enough to go he's going to open up soon mm. and our hearts are going to break and that suggestion to me, was enough that I will absolutely be there for next week's episode. I want to know more about this character. As I frequently say, this could all age like milk, but so far, Prodigy, what it hasn't been, it's not been the standout trek of 2021. That easily is Lower Deck Season 2. There's no, there's no question. But it's certainly been a very interesting first few episodes. And not primarily because of Dal, but I've talked more about Dal than any other part of Prodigy so far, and that includes the Janeway hologram. Mm, right. Okay, I'm so really I... interested to see now. Well, like if we revisit this in a couple of weeks, what where would you kind of stand on it? 
Uh, it was like, you know, kind of, so Sean, like, I don't want to talk about Dal. <laughs> Hated yeah. So, yeah. So that, I think I've kept that mostly spoiler free. So just for anyone who hasn't had a chance, because I know Prodigy is not available this side of the pond. Um, How have you watched it? I'm I, sorry, I didn't ask the question. I, I can talk about that. Um, but yes. um, anyway, so, show, lead us on. Lead us on to our next. Right, you call me a gatekeeper, you I was going, I, I'm yeah, not big sure gatekeeper. What... Yeah, exactly. Um, my next character is a slight bit of a cheat because I'm going to go with three, but also one. And I'm going to pick all Are you three. you Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit into this? Yes, I absolutely am. <laughs> um, no, I'm going to pick Captain Christopher Pike. Love and it. I'm going to pick all three of them, actually, because... All three of them, Jeffrey Hunter, Bruce Greenwood, and Anson Mount, have all played the character, all played the character differently, which is absolutely great because as a result... Sorry, you big gatekeeper. Don't you mean four Captain Pikes? Whatever. I will not have Sean Kenny's performance in the menagerie uh, strucken from history. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm such poor, an poor Sean Kenny. Um, <laughs> no, like we've discussed, like we discussed the the cage recently enough. Like we were talking about how actually really how really interesting the interpretation of the character was. Um, it's actually it, it, it's really interesting. That I'm reading at the minute. Um, you have it as well. The the new retrospective on the original series and yes yeah like one of the reasons jeffrey hunter left the role is um but it was actually his wife went to the screen and basically said yeah no dice he's out and apparently he wasn't aware that was that this was that this was happening at all at all and he really was interested in it you see i suppose when we watched argic over the years as you said we've grown up with like you know captain kirk captain picard and things like that and it was all these people who were you know like these perfect officers they're part of it they believe in all this kind of thing but when you watch the cage you see a man who's completely weary of the whole lot like and it's like it's a total it's a bit more of a kind of a dour interpretation of kind of what the future actually is like and the you know the future seems a lot more dangerous in the cage than say you know from say captain kirk's time in on in the center chair kind of honor is like and he you know his how he plays like he's a very much a kind of like there's a lot of anger in the man but it's it's really kind of enthralling and kind of you know interesting to watch because he's he's just like when he's you know when he's captured by the Telosians in in it like he just he he wants to you know get at them he wants to you know stop them from kind of holding him in there like and it's this real powerful kind of performance from him. I love him. It's very well known. My frankly disturbing amount of love for Jeffrey Hunter is mm. his, like. I mean, I'm seeking help. <laughs> the um, like when we move forward into the the reboot movies and Bruce Greenwood, then as well. Like I was, I don't even remember Bruce Greenwood from Double Jeopardy, the movie with Ashley Judd, who of course is a Star Trek fan as well, Star Trek mm-hmm. alumni. Sorry, she was in the next generation. Is, yeah. And I hated him because he was just a git in the movie, and I remember thinking, no, nah, don't like this guy at all. And then he was in this, and there, ah. No, and then he, then you watch this. They're going, oh wow, Bruce Green was really good in the role here altogether. Like, and it was just again, it was a, just this this total polar opposite to what we had with 
Jeffrey Hunter like like Bruce Greenwood's Captain Pike he was just warm kind of nice kind of guy like, like obviously you know you can still feel the kind of the presence and authority in him and things like that like Bruce Greenwood's got a brilliant voice as well um, I know if you've ever seen um, the Batman animated movie Under the Red Hood he plays Batman in it Oh, that's and right. I have seen it. Yeah, I forgot about that. And he's got a he's he's got a brilliant like. There's a wonderful authority that's in Bruce Greenwood's voice, like, and you, you like even in Star Trek Nine, you can still kind of get the feeling of kind of like kind of irritance, kind of slight annoyance at kind of certain situations and things like that. Like that is a bit of a you know a holdover from the Jeffrey Hunter days as well. Like, but he he seems a lot more kind of as like obviously he's a father figure to you know Kirk in the movie as well. Like that he's the one who kind of you know drives him into kind of joining Starfleet. Um I I like that because yeah you're right the Kelvin films did such a good job of bringing I suppose bringing Pike into awareness because yeah. you could absolutely forgive anyone really for not knowing Captain Pike if you were only to go off the original series because we mm. take it as a grant the cage is available on Netflix we take it for granted that it might not have been so well known throughout most of the 90s into the 2000s you know um and then along comes 2009 it's like who's this guy that's not Kirk what's he doing sitting in the chair what's going on the fact that Pike brings Kirk into into the universe now as I speak, I can nearly hear the voice like, oh, why is everyone in Star Wars universe a bloody Skywalker? Or, you know, everyone has to be connected. Like, no, this was really simple. And we know Pike captained the Enterprise. That's since literally since the first episode. Yeah. So having him encourage Kirk to join and take his place, it works. Absolutely. Works. Absolutely. I loved it. And then we move forward into the Discovery era and... Look, I have my own issues with Discovery and things like that, and that's fine, right? Now, other people love Discovery, and that's fine. I'm not that mad about it, and I'm, that's fine as well. We can all have our own opinions. We don't need to shout each other down about opinions and things like that. I thought Ensign Mounts Pike in Season 2 of Discovery was bloody brilliant. I thought he was just a complete throwback to kind of, like, the original series next generation is just how he came across just his personality his humanity he was totally different character to what we had had in discovery at that point and again you know what was great about discovery is that you've had you know you've had four different captains in the four seasons which is a brilliant idea because then it means the relationships kind of change you know along the way and things like that and with like and like again it's the success of pike that really has given us strange new worlds on its way because oh, absolutely everybody responded to captain pike he was just so natural he was just so easy like i just wanted to just keep watching episodes with him in it and i just didn't care because i just anton mount just comes across as such a nice kind of guy like and i remember um if memory serves i think as the episode i could be wrong um i, I was, like oh. i like what you did there I, like I know it was trying to I, remember if memory serves. <laughs> I said it and I was there go, wait a second, that's actually the name of the episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was um I was up at the start at the at the Comic Con up in Dublin um when Jonathan Frakes was there and myself and friend were there and we were driving back down. And I hadn't seen the, that episode of Discovery because I think it had premiered the night before. And my friend was there and he's there going, Oh, he said, Have you seen it? I said, No, tell me nothing. And then he was uh, there going, oh, I'll tell you nothing, I'll tell you nothing. First 30 seconds is great. 
And I said, why would you tell me this? I said, I, I said, said nothing. I didn't say anything. So I got home and it's, it shows, you know, like it shows previously on Star Trek and it shows like all the things from the cage and all that. And I just love the way the transition from Jeffrey Hunter's Pike straight into Anson Mount's Pike then. And I was kind of there going, I like the fact that they didn't just try and compute CGI in his face or whatever. I was there going, they're showing it exactly as it was. They're showing the cage, they're showing the reality. So that's bloody cool. And I love that how it just transitions straight to Anson Mount's Captain Pike. And they're going, brilliant. That they're just going with that as a, as a continuity. And there was just this, there was just this wonderful, you know, dignity to the man, how he can how he commanded the ship and all that. I said it was just a total throwback. And you see in the second episode of season two, um, is it Safe Haven or something like that? I can't remember what uh, the New Eden? Something like that. Yeah. Like it's a brilliant, it's a classic Star Trek episode in every kind of manner of speaking. Like and he's just he's just brilliant in it. Like so what I love with the character is that we've had three different iterations of the character. Each have been different to each other, but it's the same character. And it's just, it's really kind of, and if, if we've had three brilliant actors, like Jeffrey Hunters and it was, an, it was a wonderful actor. Bruce Greenwood's a bloody great actor. And Anton Mount is just like, it's great that we're going to get him in his own series finally, like because it's just, you could watch him all day. So that's my pick for my second character. Okay, no, I love it. I love it, I love it. Even though poor old Sean Kenny. But yeah, I love it. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> sorry, yes. That part of, sorry, that scene in um Discovery, in Discovery Season 2 yeah. when Pike sees the accident happening like that is absolutely brilliant. It's such a wonderfully powerful scene. And it's great that, you know, like it's, again, it commits to the fact that this is what's going to happen to him. Like he's going to be in, like it's, you know, that's a choice he has to make. Like if he sees it, it's going to happen. And you see it happening like, and again, as a Starfleet officer, he's going, he's just there going, I have to do this. Like I have to just take this on. I need to see what's going to happen, even if it means this is what my life is going to be. Yeah, no, it is. It's a, uh, because you hear an awful lot, and we move over to but you hear an awful lot of Starfleet officers saying, because Starfleet, up until I'd say Discovery, Starfleet mm. was predominantly shown as scientists in space. Now, obviously, you yeah. had the Dominion War, so, but that was always kind of a, right, we have to put science on hold while we do this. Yes. You know, and then, but we also had Voyager airing at the same time. And then even Enterprise is a bit of a mix of scientists and engineers in space. Yes. Like, there's a nebula, put me on roof. Oof, don't know, never seen one quite like that before. <laughs> um, whereas then, obviously, Discovery, it becomes more militaristic and like it or, you know, love it or hate it, there it is. Yeah. And then... <clears throat> So, so that phrase, sorry, that was, I was just like, what was my point here? You hear it so often, when you join Starfleet, you know what the risks are. And mm. you would be forgiven in TNG and Voyager for kind of like, do you though? Whereas in Discovery, yes, I absolutely believe that these people know the risks of putting on the uniform and choose to do it anyway. And well, to be fair so now, like in the in the original Star Trek, like there was no way you could ever say, you know, the risks, like for Christ's sake, you could be killed by Jack the Ripper on the Enterprise. Like you're kind of going, wait a second. <laughs> so I, I didn't like, sign up. I didn't oh, sign you up and you're joking. Name. No, 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 that actually. What? Um, You'll be killed by a gaseous cloud. You'll be turned into a small dodecahedron or whatever it is and crushed. Like, <laughs> I mean, these things actually happened. <laughs> you could be just you know patrolling a galaxy this massive planet killer will appear out of nowhere destroy 
basically batter your ship, you would be onto a planet, and then the planet could just destroy the planet around. Yep, yep. All of this is like, you know, like, and you still want to go out into space more <laughs> than ever. No, Jean Luc, really have that aromatic syndrome checked, okay? It's um, like in the episode of um, Futurama when they shows the uh, promotional video as to why to join Planet Express, and like it's just basically like total hazards left, right, and center. And if you'd like that in the 23rd century, join Starfleet. Here's all the missions we go on. You're going to get attacked by this, this. A giant green hand is going to stop your ship in outer space. Uh, you're probably going to just time travel for the crack at some point and just decide to go back in time and monitor Earth in the 1960s. But beyond that, and yeah. you get killed by several different things. Be grand. Right, anyway, John, so, uh, yeah. John, well, your third choice. My third choice is that Romulan Mama Laris. I love Laris. Orla Brady in Star Trek Picard. Oh, yes, our um, Irish person, yes. Uh, I love that, like, you know, kind of like, I think you had an idea of what my five are going to be. And bar the first one, I think you've been like, I have not seen any of these picks coming. No, well, I, I kind of figured you might pick more kind of current characters than I would because you watch the, 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 you know, the current Star Trek more than I would say. So I kind of figured that might be the case, but that works out well. Yes. Um, I like, no, I, I, I like Laris. I very much, again, this, I'm, I'm hijacking your start. Um, <laughs> I liked her very much kind of bluntness in everything she kind of said in, in, in her appearances. And I, I love as well, and you and this is this this is not particularly an Irish podcast, but yes, it is. She is the only person in all of Star Trek to use the word fecker, which I yes. absolutely right. love. Absolutely love. And I love as well, no shade to my lovely, lovely co-workers at a certain site who are English, and they did not think she used the word fecker. Oh, she uh, did. Oh, she absolutely used the word fecker. Absolutely yeah. did, like. So, why don't I love her so much? Apart from the fact that I think Paul Brady is a fantastic actor. Um, I've loved her in like everything I've ever seen her in. Uh, starting with Doctor Who was the first thing I saw her in. Then she was in, you know, she was in Fringe. Uh, she was in, she was in a movie, sorry, I have to, I have to, she was in a movie called 32A, which is an Irish production, uh, which co-starred Aidan Quinn, my mother fell in love, and uh, co-starred uh, a very close friend of mine, Ailish McCarthy, who played the lead in that film she is lovely oh, and good. that is my shout out to Ailey Schultz by the way um, who potentially will kill me for saying that but anyway but no and Orla Brady played her mother and she just brings a motherly power to every scene in Star Trek Picard even though she's obviously not playing Picard's mother she is very much a matriarch even in her role of you know she's the housekeeper but She's having none of Jean-Luc's nonsense. You know, he's like, you know, I'm going to go off into space. And, you know, she throws the train. You're what? You know, and it's, and it's, and you're kind of like, you know, oh, what are they going to do with this scene? And no, it's brilliant. It's just like, all right, so you're going to go off and die then. Is that it? Yeah, and I suppose you're going to go with them. Hmm, yeah, well, the Perrius can go. And you can just, and she just <laughs> delivers it with such, I felt it was so real. And I could feel like, you know, she's so worried about Jean-Luc. And that comes across in every single tone. Now, you've got the big backstory, which is alluded to more, sh more so than shown on screen. The, um, the companion the comic went into it a little bit more. Yeah, um, did you read that, actually? I did, yes. Yes, um, yeah, exactly, which, yeah. Yeah, so she's ex-Talshiar. 
um, yeah. which makes perfect sense when you look at well, because that is it is stated on screen it's not not really explored except in um the second episode where she goes and basically herself and Jean-Luc break into Daj's apartment which is completely mm. scrubbed by the Jacques Vash uh, spoiler, 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 spoiler. I'm assuming you've all seen it at this point. And this is where we get the immortal line. It's been absolutely cl- cleaned. Cheeky feckers. Brilliant. Love it. Why does a Romulan know the word fecker? Doesn't matter. Um, but hang on a second. That, that, that's one thing about Laris that I found interesting is that like, yo, we kind of, look, look Star Trek's an American show. We know that, right? Hmm. And it's, it's, it's always weird to me when it's kind of like, you know, I don't think I have an accent, right? I don't think you have an accent. Anyone listening to us goes, those two lads are Irish. 100 million percent, right? Yet we see Romulans in Star Trek all the time and they have American accents and all this kind of thing. But the second it's an Irish accent or an English accent, it's kind of, why did Romulans speak with these accents? I kind of go, wait a second. But, but, but also, like, I mean, again, same logic, but one of my favourite phrases from Star Trek Picard is, please, my friend, choose to live. You know, and it's just like, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously Evan Peters' natural Australian accent, which I yeah. love. Why is a Romulan from Australia? Why not? It's, it's kind of, it's funny because as you rightly say, Star Trek is an American show. And so we have had predominantly, with obviously very notable examples, American, you know, leading cast or, or main cast. Yeah. Obviously you get tons and tons of examples. Patrick Stewart, obviously not an American man. Um, and then... Sorry, hang on a second, just to that. Patrick Stewart, not an American man, British man playing a Frenchman. Exactly, yeah. And if you think a Frenchman can't have an uh, English accent in the 2400s, then I'm sorry, that's on you. And that was the logic they went with for that. Um, but see, with like with Laris, as you said, is that like one of the appealing things about Laris, and it's like the same with, say, Dr. McCoy in the original series, it's a natural approach to everything. And it doesn't feel forced. As you said, when she said cheeky feckers, it doesn't feel shoehorned in. It feels natural to the character. And that's what I liked about Laris whenever I saw her, is that you'd feel that whatever she says, it's not necessarily how to put it in service of the plot going forward at all times. It's more of a case of she is reacting to the situation. She's just being herself. And that always works for you know for supporting cast and things like that because you've got the main characters and all that kind of thing and they're progressing the plot forward on a constant basis. You've got characters like Lara Sten who are kind of you know who kind of you know factor in as well. They have progressed in their own way, but as a result, they're kind of almost freed up to be more human. Well, in her case, Romulan. And just kind of as a result, then they can be more natural. And it's the natural thing then that adds kind of like, how would I put it, kind of credence to what, what else is going on. Like, as I loved about her, it's just how normal she was in a lot of situations. That's it. Um, and she brings an intensity that isn't overly intense. Yes. Like, if you look at the way just before Picard goes to do his interview, she just kind of goes and says, don't forget who you are. Know that we didn't. And it's really like, oh, that feels very profound. Even though <laughs> officially we don't know what she's referring to. Of course, we all do. We watch the trailer. But, you know, officially we don't know what she's referring to. Um, she will be back for season two. I am yes. over the moon. Um, and I've heard rumours it might be a larger role. It might not be. I'll be happy with whatever Laris we get. I love that shot in the trailer where she seems to be men in blacking. Um, yes, someone 
and you have I think it's Rios and or Rios because I got correct on that before apologies Rios and Picard in black tie behind her boom I'm happy I, I don't care what the context is I want to see that <laughs> right so Joseph number three let's go because you've picked Laris, I am going to continue the Irish team because, of course, I was going to pick Chief Miles Edward O'Brien because there's no, no way in hell could we have this list without picking him. There's just no way. O'Brien is such... And again, I'm totally biased. I'm an Irishman. Conor is Irish, and he's a bloody brilliant character. He was brilliant in The Next Generation before DS9 even came along, and... Like even the actor himself, like I remember you're reading the book at the minute, um, the 50 year, uh, the part one and two. Yep. Like when you get to the part in DS9 where Rick Berman is talking about Conamini and he was saying that like they were constantly getting inundated requests to get him in movies. There was producers, directors, they all wanted him in movies because of how good he actually is. Like when you actually look at some of the stuff he's been in, like his bloody his career is like it's as long as your arm, like and a lot of people kind of forget that he was you know, he was he wasn't just in Sergeant in the nineties, he was in loads of movies. He was in Con Air in the nineties, he was in Die Hard Two as well. Now granted Die Hard Two was a tiny role and all that kind of stuff. But like he just has this wonderful everyman approach to kind of all the situations he's in. In the next generation, he was always he was a really kind of strong supporting character, but in DS9 they just found a way to, you know, give him an episode every season where his entire life fell apart and everything was completely just a mess. Like Whispers, tri- yeah, no, Whispers, Tribunal, Visionary, Hard Time, The Assignment, Honor Among Thieves, Times Orphan, all this kind of thing. And he was just absolutely class in absolutely all of them. Like, it's just when, yeah. what you like about him is that he's just, he's so irritable like even in the very first episode of um of the assigned emissary when they're trying to move the station and just it will nothing will work and he just kicks the console <laughs> the thing that's working and it's just again like we, we literally have discussed with laris the importance of just the human approach to everything like and that's what you get with o'brien it's just a total you know human approach that you have with it and I loved as well, like we've discussed with Garrick and Bashir's relationship over the years. And you see the relationship between O'Brien and Bashir as well. like, And it's just bloody hilarious. O'Brien can't stand Bashir most of the time. He irritates the hell out of him. Know, and Bashir yeah. just does not care. He's constantly upbeat and friendly towards him and all this kind of thing. And no matter how friend, more friendly they got, like in the, I think from the fourth season onwards and they started doing the holiday show programs and all that, together you still felt that o'brien was just constantly just suffering bashir as much as he could oh and like and I, their their exchange in extreme measures is just you know where bashir is like you know obviously i love esri passionately i just like you more He's like, well what do you mean well, surely do you know do you do you like me he was like and uh, o'brien's just like but i love my wife like, well i know you love your wife but do you like me more i'm not having this conversation i'm not dying in here you know and it's just it's it's so well done it's just it's sweet it's funny yeah it's yeah i like like as well i i like that he's a like he's a hard-nosed kind of type of person like i love you know the backstory with stuff like fighting the cardassian war being on set like three and all that kind of stuff and like I, I love how you know, like they've even kept that going. Like remember in Empoch Noor as well, even 
when Garrick slightly goes mad and he's trying to call O'Brien out and all that kind of stuff. And the funny thing is, even with all his experience, he always kind of feared that whenever he got into a fight, he always got beaten up. Yeah, that's true. Because I think Colomini could just take a punch or something. Yeah, um, could, yeah, yeah. But also, one thing that you didn't really see this as much on TNG, because we didn't get enough of O'Brien. We got a bit of it, of course, in a very important episode. Mm. But O'Brien and maybe Cisco of the characters who began in the, or, you know, were in Emissary, sorry, of the Starfleet officers, I keep having to qualify it down, were soldiers. Yes. You know, um, obviously Worf when he came into it, you know, but, and that was, that was really celebrated without it being his primary trait. You know yes. what I mean? You know, the, the, the battle of the massacre of Setlick 3, of course, we'd had the wounded, which established the fact that, you know, Setlick 3, the Rutledge, uh, Captain Maxwell, and, you know, learning to overcome his hatred of Cardassians, which actually now that I think of it, the big massive joke of Michael Bryan suffer, this man really struggles with Cardassians, put him on a Cardassian station. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but when he, but like really as you well said, but like when when we look at Star Trek, we're often, you know, it's all about kind of you know explorers and all this kind of thing. Scientists, as you said, when you look at say the original series episode Errand of Mercy, where Kirk says he's a soldier, not a diplomat, kind of thing. Like, and you see with O'Brien as well, you never like you never really feel that O'Brien is kind of the explorer in that kind of way at all. Like he's just like he's a normal guy who's lived a normal life. And a lot of bad things have happened to him. <laughs> as a result, maybe he's not as kind. Like, when you look at, say, like, Hard Time, like, like Hard Time is a oh. very, very hard episode to watch. I watched it again there recently. I was like, oh, God, this is actually a real tough one to watch. Um, it is because, you know, at that stage, Star Trek, I like, I will say about, like, Discovery, Discovery and Lower Decks, Star Trek has become far less subtle. Than it used to mm. be. Um, and I would attribute some of that to with far less time. We used to have 26 episodes a season. Now we've usually got yes. 13. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but Hard Time was one of those episodes that put PTSD whoa up front and center. As in, you cannot look away. There is no there is no escape route here. You know, you're not gonna just, you know, kind of ah listen, be grand, be grand. I mean, although one of the sins, if you like, is that the episode sort of ends. That's the last time we ever hear about each other. But the way the episode ends, it's very much Miles is going to therapy for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. His friends and family are going to support him. And his own, his own figment of PTSD, who was, of course, the embodiment of each other, he comes to terms with that just enough by the end of the episode that you're like, okay, he'll be okay. And that 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 that's a hard, hard story to watch anyway, but also to act out and to write. It's very, very difficult because how do you but, do that without it going too much on either side? And we have the, sorry, sorry what? just to finish this, we have a character, a main character in Star Trek. It wasn't the first time, but it wasn't common, sitting alone in a cargo bay, pointing a phaser at himself. Yes. And that works when you care. Yep. Um, which we really, really cared about O'Brien. Um, there had been other episodes where, you know, they had dealt with this idea um, 
obviously Eye of the Beholder, you had Troy almost jump mm. into the uh, the nacelles, but she was being sort of psychically manipulated, whereas this was grief. Now yes, it might have, it might have come from a manufactured place, but this was grief. But DS9 was always willing to do that. Like they weren't willing to, they weren't going to just step up, you know, not attack these kind of things head on. Like the the only the only issue I'd have done those in those situations, I mean, look at hard time and all that. The episode ends and it's kind of that's the end of it. That's the story done. We move on. Yeah. And you know, like show like it's it's so strange. You've got 26 episodes, as you said with Discovery, it's less, but there's more continuation. So if somebody was going through something in one episode, you will see it. You know, go forward, and we talk about you know, make your brain suffer. But the problem with it is, though, it's kind of dealt with, and we just move on. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of yeah, we're not going to like, with the exception maybe like say things with Odo and things like that 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 were kind of continuous. With the O'Brien thing, it just is very much yeah, it's done. We're we're, we're moving on now, and that kind of thing. Like, but again, look, when you've got a brilliant actor like Colomini you're going to make use of him. And in those episodes, he's absolutely bloody astonishing. So for me, that's my third choice. So Sean, who is your fourth? I had to have a think, because I know who my fifth is. So I had to have a think about my fourth because I don't want to leave any treks out. <laughs> but <laughs> I have gone with Martha Hackett's Seska. Oh, interesting. Now, so... Seska for me didn't get anywhere near enough screen time. Right? No. So, but what she did in the short time that we had her, I think made her a character who certainly deserved more. Um, so, uh, really quickly, Seska was part of Chicote's resistance cell, Maki resistance cell, who was swept into the Delta Quadrant by the caretaker. And at the end of Caretaker, Chicote agrees, yeah, it'll be one crew with Janeway as captain, Chicote as commander, and so Seska finds herself a member of the crew wearing Science Division blue. Lol, we won't think of that in the future. So now, very early into season one, um, Seska is, she's, she's revealed to be, she's certainly one of the most headstrong of the Maquis. Now, we, all, we all also have characters like Bolana Torres, you know, who is, you know, being headstrong as part of her character build-up. Mm. And I'm not just talking about the ridges whale. And sorry, that was dreadful, but I had to. And so you could <laughs> you could easily be forgiven for thinking, okay, so this is going to be interesting. So for season one, rather than just have, oh, we're all one happy crew, it's like we might deal with another Mackie member every couple of episodes and sort of meet this head on, which to a very small extent they did do, but they didn't do that with Seska. Because she was never a bloody marquee to begin with. No. Nope. In, in the episode... No, it's not State of Flux. Um, in the episode that I am rapidly Googling. Um, <laughs> it's not State of Flux now. What one is it? Uh, do you, sorry, do you know off the top of your head? I don't. State of Flux, I think it's the one where they... Um, they go to the people with the... In the episode. Oh, so as I said, in the episode State of Flux... Uh, she is. <laughs> I've edit out for that ten seconds there now. <laughs> uh, ne- 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 never doubt yourself, Sean. No, no, we are not editing. Everything gets left in, warts and all. Um, she's revealed to be a Cardassian double agent, and the mm-hmm. reveal is quite chilling because we get over the course of the forty minutes, we get Martha Hackett powerfully loyal to Chakotay and powerfully disloyal to Janeway, and we think that this is going to be, something is going to come to a head here. 
because obviously yeah. you can't have I mean, she might be only wearing the art uniform out of you know kind of well if I have to but we well, are have edging to, into do. mutiny territory like mm. um, and then it's revealed someone on the ship has been trading with the Kazon and what you know one of Starfleet's big rules is we do not trade technology we don't yeah. do it and turns out they're very right to because it causes a horrible disaster and someone is trying to cover their tracks and it's revealed to be Lieutenant Carey. But no, it isn't. Because it's of course it's not mass. Joe Carey. Because of course it's not Joe Carey. Poor old Joe Carey has to stay around until <clears throat> that episode. He mysteriously yeah. showed him one episode and then was killed. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and there is, there have been hints along the way that, oh, she's not what she seems. But no, 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 that she always had an answer. She always had an answer. And then Chakotay calls her on it. And Tuvok walks in and they're all sitting there and she just says, you know what? Screw it. She just, she just looks at Janeway and she utters an immortal line which doesn't get nearly enough remembrance. She looks at Janeway and says, if this was a Cardassian ship, we'd be home now. But to be fair now, she is not wrong when she says that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Should the Cardassian probably nip back and forth every other week? The caretaker brings one in, they're like, nope. And back they go again. But, but the thing she, with, Mar you know, with Marta Hackett, sorry, just cut across for a second, is that she always reminded me of Carolyn Seymour, who was, yeah. you know, a, a Next Generation alumni, is that she just came across as evil the whole time. Like, no matter what episode she was in, you were there going, yeah, but she's probably bad. She just, she just is like, if you saw Carolyn Seymour in any episode, even in First Contact in The Next Generation, she's just evil. And you just know she she's evil. Of course, yeah. Because my, my first thing is face the enemy when I think of Carolyn Seymour. Every time I think Carolyn Seymour, I actually think of geez, I li uh, Contagion, actually. I should play the same character. Oh, that's in... right. Yeah, you're dead right. Um, yes, there we go. the last time I watched Contagion. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, you were talking about the end of the episode, State of Flux, after Seska said about if they were a Karatsian ship, they'd be home. they be home. And, you know, it's, you know, she's, she turns out she's very, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of, I can't believe I used to love you to Chakotay. And he's like, hey, whatever. She's just like, Basically, you're beneath me now. And then she does the immortal kind of, you know, basically clicking her fingers and she beams away. And of course, please explain that when the Kazon have the same technology of 21st century Earth. But anyway, it's fine. Um, and then... How dare you point out a plot hole? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And she kind of, you know, she turns up kind of spottily throughout season two, right? And there's yeah. enough there that you're like, no, I get she has at least a fascination with Chicago. If not actual feeling, she has a fascination with him. That I think would be really interesting to explore. And then she's dead. And it was such a writing screw up. Because they said that they were they were running into an issue with the problem was with the Kazon. They had run yes. out of things to do with the Kazon. Yeah. And they were just like, well, look, Voyager's flying off into the Delta Quadrant. Now surely we're going to stop seeing the Kazon. And yep, yep, yeah, yeah, okay. But I mean, you know this. If you want to bring a character back, you will. You'll find a way. You know, and they just chose, right, we'll just kill her off. And even Martha Hackett didn't know they were going to do that and didn't know it was going to happen the way that it did and was not happy about it, I think, bloody understandably as well. She came back twice more, uh, once as a hologram in the great episode, Worst Case Scenario. scenario. Where, where, you know, a great way of getting the character back. Oh, I found this program that Tuvok was working on. I completely rewrote it because of course I did. And actually, look, here's Seska, have some fun. And that's basically how the episode works and it's great. And then we get what I love, the only interaction between Seven of Nine and Seska, 
comes in the seventh season episode Shattered, where all different parts of Voyager are split into different time zones. That is basically their way of doing a clip show without doing a clip show. Yes. And we get, you know, Kazon and Seska have, you know, they are in control of engineering. The Borg are in control of Cargo Bay too. Echeb and Naomi Wildman are in the Astrometrics Bay, which apparently has not had a lick of paint in 20 years. And <laughs> it's just so fun. It's a pure tribute. And seeing Seven and Seska for the fraction of a second that they're together was great. Like, you know, like if, if you could have kept one recurring villain and just found a way, found a way of having her through bad alliances or, you know, this or that, even to the point where, like, you know, we're just annoyed of you. Why are you still here? And yet, and yet, Martha Hackett, Seska, for me, was so much fun. She was so underused that she needs so much more recognition. And this is why at the very end of 2021, the very beginning of 2022, I'm just like, yes, Martha Hackett for return. Bring her back. Lower decks. You can do this. But Sean, this is the start of 2022. This That's why is, I said. This is, is why I said January both. 2022, said of course. I, this I is said, not the 29th end of 2020, December. I, I said end of 2021, start of 2022. I was very careful. Do you know what I, one thing, one thing I actually like about Siska is like whenever she dealt with somebody, you always knew that she was playing a game with them the whole time oh. and all this and all that. But what I liked in basics is she tries that with the doctor and the mm. doctor is just there going, because she's effectively there to the doctor going, you hate us that we're here and you're going to try and do this and that. And he's kind of there going, no, <laughs> this is my program. Like I, I, I'm going to help people. Like this is what I do. And you can just see she's desperate to try and you know, almost get him to hate her. And she's there going, he's kind of, yeah, look, I don't care. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, none of this bothers me at all. And I love that interaction because she just couldn't get around it. And I love then the revelation with the child then, that mm. the child is not actually Chakotay's child. And it's almost a sense of disgust in her that the child is half Kazan. And like, yeah, because it's the, probably the one time you see where Seska's kind of, all her like her because she just all she ever did was plot and this time it didn't work out and you really kind of see the sense of regret and sadness in her and there's this wonderful depth to the character and then she's killed off in the next episode yeah exactly yeah so did you enjoy that depth yeah well here's a phaser overload <laughs> uh so show what is your number four pick? continuing on from the voyager um i actually picked the doctor oh lovely. um I abs- I always liked the Doctor. I thought, like, I think that they muddled with him a bit at the start because it, I think they knew he was interesting, but he was caught with the holodeck thing. And I didn't think they really could, you know, they couldn't really express what they wanted to work with him. But when he got the mobile emitter and things like that, as a character, he just completely came into his own. In fairness, Robert Picardo is bloody brilliant as the Doctor. He can be charming, annoyed, funny, cringy, romantic he can be brave he can be absolutely everything you want in a character and it's just every time you see him it's you don't know what you're going to get with him and that's what i absolutely love about the character i love that he's a character you see grow over the years and he's a character who wants to grow as well and like you'd look at it like you even like like you take say you know like um life signs in season two he actually you know he falls in love with uh the Vidian doctor and things like that where like in real life in season three i think it is or at the end of season two where he has you know a holiday family and it's all perfect and it's all real and all this kind of thing 
And then Blana Torres kind of says, yeah, we're going to just change that around. And then it becomes a completely dysfunctional family. And he has to learn the importance of kind of, you know, the people are different and, and everything isn't perfect and things like that. And he has a hard time kind of, you know, adapting to it. And like as time goes by, when he gets mobile and Mater then you see like when he becomes the command hologram, when he becomes like an author in critical care then as well. Critical care, like we discussed this in the very, very first episode of our podcast, I love critical care because it really shows, you know, him as a healer. And like it brings out all the best qualities in him, like his frustration at the way the service is doing his, you know, the way he plots to kind of, you know, over, basically overthrow the system, things like that. He's just a wonderful, wonderful character. And he's played by a wonderful actor. I, it's, having done a little bit of a rewatch, it's just going back and seeing how quickly he settles in because you say the same for any Star Trek, any first season, everyone takes a little while to get used to their characters. That's that's just par for the course, you know? Like, the Doctor of Season 7 and the Doctor of early Season 1 are quite different, but yeah. that also narratively makes sense as well. He, only, he literally is five minutes old, you know? Yeah. But going into Season 2 very, very quickly, Robert Ricardo got to relax a bit in the role, he got more to do, even... Heroes and Demons, go back to season one for a second. Yes. It's yeah. great fun. It's his first away mission. And, you know, it's it's good fun. It's enjoyable, you know. Yet when he does later away missions, yes, he's much more comedic. But I really, really, really like the Doctor an awful lot now, I must say. Um, and then when, you know, when the chips are down, he can be a bit of a badass when he wants to be. Uh, and I, lo- I love to just pretend because the killing game is one of my favorite two partners. I just watched it on repeat throughout the 90s. And he is, you know, instigating an insurrection on board Voyager. He is recruiting this, that, and that. And yet he's also the person who doesn't want to get rained on on the holodeck. And he's like, oh, good luck, tally ho. It was brilliant. <laughs> just, just that humor. Yeah, he, he, like, he can just come across as so bloody awkward at times as well, can't he? Like, um, like even project, like projections is probably the first time really he was given a, just a massive starring role as well. Like, like projections is a, is is a really really good episode actually as well. But the funny thing is then is like when you look at Doctor Bashir, I presume in DS Nine when he plays you know Doctor Zimmerman, I get a totally different character. Like it's a totally like it's the exact same person, but like it's just again it's it's the range Robert Picardo has. Like you could have. Like the two of them together, Zimmerman and the Doctor, and like it's chalk and cheese. It's the exact same man, but the, it's just how wonderful he is. Like the Doctor, almost like it's almost like a child of wonder constantly, and he wants to you know learn more. He wants to be more and all this. And Zimmerman is just this you know crusty, disillusioned, almost hating individual. And when they come together, it's just it's 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 brilliant to watch it because you could just watch Robert Picardo act in the role all day long because he's just he's just brilliant he really is um again i said like i i don't think they really knew what to fully do with him at the start the idea is probably great he's just you know they can turn him off and all that kind of thing but then as the seasons went by like he totally you know as his character developed as well and you know kind of like pardon me sergeant always has kind of you know needs a character like that somebody who's trying to learn about who they are spark data uh, Odo, the Doctor, and all that kind of thing. And what's great about all of them is how different all their stories are and how their stories come about. Like, and you know, each character always has a relationship with one person more than anyone. And I don't think anyone really kind of would have picked the Doctor and Seven as being that. Yeah. 
Uh, and it, but uh, it works so well. I think what they were, or I got a feeling that early Dr. Kez was where they ended up with Dr. Seven. Do you yes. get that feeling? Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I would have been like totally fine with that. I think Kess, Jennifer Lean's performance as Kess has gone through a bit of a reappraisal in the years that have gone by, uh, as will happen with every flipping everything from Star Trek ever. You know, it's just perfect. And perhaps if she had had more time, we would have seen that blossom. Um, or, I mean, looking at you, writers of Star Trek Voyager season three, <laughs> give her something to do. Um, before and after is a fantastic episode. It is, yeah. That and they Warlord did... are the two Kess episodes. Do you know what I mean? Like like it's, it, it's definitely a case of, especially with Kess, they hadn't a clue what to do with her. Like again, it started well going, oh yeah, her race only lives a small amount of years and all this kind of thing, but just, there was there was no plan beyond that. Like that's that's it. Like that's it. Like funny enough, I, I was talking to some some writer friends, and so many people will, will, will they'll start a project different ways. And look, they're all valid, but right, some will start with a character and then they will work a situation. And some will work completely the way. They'll work, start with a situation, and then they'll start to drip feed characters, and maybe, oh, the character must have this trait for this, da 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 da, da. And I think they never found the balance. With I realise we're talking about the Doctor, so I'll make this really, really quick. Okay. They never found the balance with Kess. It's like, they might have had a situation, mm-hmm. and then they might have had a character trait, but they never found a way to make those two things match up. She yes. was a stowaway, effectively, and while she was shunted into sick bay, oh no, I've run out of things to say. And unfortunately, that's what happened. So the doctor ended up carrying an awful lot of their scenes together, which benefited the doctor. And through absolutely no fault of anybody's, but the writings completely ended up detracting from poor Jennifer Lee. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I, I do. I, I, I have a. I'm a very critical person when it comes to writing but you know there's 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 good and bad and everything so sean that is my fourth choice who is your fifth and final choice that's cool so we'll start talking about my fifth and final choice and then halfway through you start talking about a different character as well which is what yeah. i just did for for your <laughs> one sorry uh well my final one is uh this is sort of a cheat but it's not because it's another ds9 it's major kira oh yes 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 yes, yes. i mean has there been such a depiction of strength while also showing vulnerability and, you know, just unashamedly proud in... in okay, so, right, these, these are all just buzzwords. Um, Nana Visitor in Emissary was, again, so this is the same, she was at the same uh, DST that Andrew Robinson was at. And in Emissary, Major Kira was a bit sort of, you know, thrown together because the role had been written for Michelle Ford to come Ford, back yes. as Roe Aaron. She said, don't want to commit to a series. Okay. I'd, I would have loved to have her back, but she look, I would not have taken away a second of the now visitor. Um, as a very good friend of mine who was listening to this, and you know who you are, who has opinions on the novice as an actor and I'm like come here to me now and I flick you in the nose because from Emissary there are some moments that are a bit like mm, this is definitely a pilot episode and yet even in that 
she is able to convey without being too over the top. You know, I have been fighting for all of my life. You are just the, you're just a caretaker. That's that's all you guys are. Like, sorry, mm. I will, I'll try not to be rude, but I'm so busy with my day. I'm not particularly going to be pleasant either. And that was basically her character in Emissary um, with that dreadful haircut. Sorry. Um, then how quickly we get things like progress in, in season one where she is tasked with kicking a farmer off his land because you know, in the name of progress. It's to help all of Bajor. And hang on, she's been fighting for so long to free Bajor from oppression. She is now walking as a quote-unquote oppressor. That's what, and then, but duet. I was just about to say duet, yeah. I was yeah. literally going to interrupt you to say that, yeah. There are so few episodes from TNG, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, nearly all of them, because actually TOS does quite well on this, this front, of first season episodes that will make a top 10 overall duet will make a top 10 overall certainly mm. of ds9 like certainly of ds9 if not trek as a whole but i will if it's just ds9 it's definitely a top 10 episode i think when you look at ds9 specifically i think the best characters for having like an episode with pardon the fucking pardon the pun shade of gray were <laughs> always garrick odo and kira yeah. They were always the episodes whereby you could really kind of tell like an uncomfortable episode with them in it. Like Duet is a perfect example of that as well. Like Duet is an absolutely brilliant ending. Like when it's clear that this guy is not who he claims to be, but he needs someone to be responsible for what it's happened. It yeah, it's terrible. Brutal. And it's Kira who has up for all of season one, Kira has been the embodiment of the Bajoran hatred of the Cardassians. Now she's there, she'll do her job, but she hates Cardassians. She can barely tolerate Garrick in season one. And they don't have an awful lot of season, or perhaps even into season two. And here she is, she's the one dealing with, immediately, without any preamble, without anything else, she has this man thrown in prison. He's a Cardassian. Yeah. And he has a certain syndrome. Now, she, she does what she waits long enough to hear that he has a syndrome, which can only have located him from one place. Throw him in jail. Doesn't matter. Throw him in jail. Throw him in jail. And she's the one who goes to him with the truth and says, you're not Goldar Heel. You are Eamon Maritza. Uh, shout out to the amazing Harris Eulen in that episode. And then, you know, we got Necessary Evil from season two, where we find out that, you know, yeah, Guys, remember the fact that Kira is a self-identified terrorist. She uses that word. But what's, yeah. what's great about Kira is that, like, I love the fact that she's got, she hates Cardassians. She can't stand Starfleet. Mm -hmm. She hates her own religion. She hates her own leaders. She hates her own government. So at some point or another, she basically hates so many of them. So she's got this complicated relationship with absolutely everybody. And it's really kind of cool because, like, you know, she hates Cardassians for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. She can't stand Starfleet because they're moving in and she's kind of they're going, you'll be gone in a week and the Cardassians back. She thinks, you know, the provisional government is a mess and she's probably right with that. She yeah. can't stand, you know, um, well, Vedic win as it was at the time. And like in, say, the trilogy to start season two, like when she sent you know back the Beijing, she just she can't readjust 
to non kind of, you know, service life and all that kind of thing. So she's a wonderfully complicated character because I think she herself struggles with what she is supposed to be as a person, what she is supposed to be as a leader and all that kind of thing. And it makes the character really interesting. Then we see a lot of the backstory and, you know, we kind of strip a lot of it away and you see then that like, you know, again, what we've said before, DS9 will commit to it when other shows wouldn't have, is that she is a terrorist, she's a murderer, and she's done all these things, and she had to do that. And DS9 is not afraid to say, yes, Kira did all of these things because she absolutely had to. Absolutely. I think perhaps the episode you might have been alluding to there is The Darkness and the Light. Yes. Which is, I remember, so I, I mean, Star Trek DS9 was, you know, PG from the beginning. That's an episode where I'd be like, do you know what? I'm actually going to slap a 15s on that one because I remember watching that as, God, it must have been seven or eight. Completely missing all of the overtones and just be like, this is scary. I don't want to go through the transporter. Watching it as an adult, that, I mean, what an episode. You have technically, and I mean technically now, a very sympathetic villain. Yeah. In um, now his, his name escapes me. The actor is Randy Oglesby. Uh, came back in many, many ones. Uh, Siller and Print, right? Uh, he was critically wounded in a terrorist attack by the Shikar resistance cell, and so he has been picking off the survivors of the resistance cell. And you know it's horrible, and these horrible things are happening. And characters we've seen before, Pharrell and Lupusa, for example. You know, or like, oh, no, no, don't do this. And then, you know, Kira effectively narrows it. She sort of doesn't so much stumble into his lair as, you know, it's one of three lairs. This is the one we go to. And, you know, he's gone, he's been completely driven mad by his injuries. But he is very much, I will only punish the guilty. At this point, Nana Visitor was quite heavily pregnant. And in the show, Kira was carrying the O'Brien's baby because of nonsense. And he says, you, you are the guilty party, not that baby. So in his warped mind, I will cut the baby out of you and raise the baby, you know, and keep it safe. And, but there is that wonderful exchange where he shows her his very scarred face and said, you did this to me. She goes, what do you want an apology? You are oppressors. It doesn't matter if you were a gardener or if you were a gull, none of you belonged there. And you were destroying our planet and you want me to feel sorry for you. And it is just like, can you imagine writing those words today? Not saying you couldn't, but can you imagine the visceral reaction if somebody was to write those words today and defend a suicide bomb or defend, you know, this terrorist attack in a post 9-11 world? It just, but again... Yeah, yeah it's, but it's a ball to kind of say this is what the character would say. Like we discussed yeah. this with the Next Generation episode, The Enemy, when, you know, Worf giving the blood transfusion to Romulan. And in the end, you know, the writer said, what happens if he just says no yeah. and doesn't do it? And again, it's having the courage to kind of go, because that's exactly what Kira would say. The audience is expecting her to be a Starfleet officer and say, basically, I'm sorry, etc., etc. I can help you and all this kind of thing. But in the situation, Kira is basically there going, I'll, I'd rather die the person I am than basically pretend to be someone that I'm not. And again, 
It's committing to the character and it's so important, especially for Kira. And that's the great thing with Kira in a lot of the situations, a lot of the episodes that deal with her past, she does not hide from her past. Like her past is her past, the good things, the bad things, all the things she's done. She absolutely commits and owns to everything that she has done because it was all in service of trying to rid, you know, Bajor of the Cardassians. What's what's fascinating as well is that over the first five seasons, and even Darkness in the Light is mid-season five, but over the first five seasons, we see her mellow slightly, not entirely, but mellow slightly, to the point where you can, you can see her understanding of the greater good, bringing us to the new occupation at the start of season six. She has been ordered by both the Bajoran government and by Starfleet to keep Bajor out of the fighting. Right, yes. because Bajor won't survive, not for one second. And mm. so she finds herself in a situation where she has to work alongside Guldukat, Weyun, and you know the station's ruling council. And over the you know couple of episodes, she you know is like no kind of making the most of it. And you know, there's as Quark of all people points out, there's no fences. Uh, cutting off the promenade, you know, there's no crying of starving children. And she's like, God, you're actually right. You know, she's, there's just this, well, maybe things are not the point. And then she is confronted by Vedic Yasim, who says, you know, what will you be doing as the most senior Bajoran on the station to combat the occupation? She's like, well, listen, you know, kind of not much we can do at the moment. Got to keep that out of the fighting. And she's like, oh, right. Okay. So the only thing Vedic Yasim doesn't say in that scene is, oh, so you've become a collaborator. Hmm. And it's not said because it doesn't need to be. Because yes. in the next scene where Vedic Yasum goes right ahead with her demonstration, mm-hmm. that is a scene that could only have worked with Kira. Yes. Because it took such a visceral shock for all of us, but also, you know, for Kira especially to go, oh my God, if this character is okay. With what's going on, yeah. what hope is there for anyone? And I it's was just this reminder of, oh my god, no, 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 no. I was worried watching season four that there might have been a romantic thing between Kira and Ducat, and I was there going, "There's been enough nonsense love stories throughout, you know, the history of television." And I was there going, "I don't like this, not one bit." I was really hard to see. Not only did not happen, the Man of Visitor was absolutely dead against it. And she's basically there going like the man's Hitler, like there's no way this would ever happen. Like I genuinely thought it would act I really was when you're watching episodes like what's it? Um is it Return to Glory? What's the is it Return to Grace? That's it, um, Return to Grace. Yeah. I was I was there going, Oh god, I said this is gonna happen, isn't it? And I was there going, Oh man, this would be the ultimate betrayal of such a cool character, and it didn't. And I was bloody delighted that it didn't. And I love the you old, know, I, I love when Ducat goes bad again. He joins the Dominion and all that kind of thing. Akira basically is, you know, you know, basically vowing a vengeance against him for everything and kind of things like that. And again, it's just with the, see, the, with the, the problem with the character Akira was is that, as you say, right, when you watch the first, second season, She's very much kind of like, you know, a very strong character and all that kind of thing. I'm always concerned with mellowing of a character because I think then they humanize the character a bit too much at times. And I was really worried with Kira in relation to that because I just, they're going, I don't want this character necessarily mellowed and humanized and all that kind of thing. Because I'm kind of there going, like, 
at the end of the day, like this is a, basically this is a terrorist. This is somebody who was killed. This is someone who would kill to protect her homeland. And I was there going, I want, because again, DSI was a conflict show from start to finish. Like, and I was there going, I want her to remain a hard ass for the entire season because if we lose that, we'll lose the character completely. Um, and yeah, so okay, so show who is your final pick. Now this was a tough one because I, I had to pick somebody from the greatest show of all, the Next Generation, and okay. I I was a toss up. Like Picard was the obvious one, but I was there. No, I'm not going to pick the obvious one. And then I was going to pick Riker because I absolutely love Riker, but I was there. Yep. No, and I was there going. I have to pick the character that I absolutely love when I was a kid. And that was Mr. Data. And they're going, I cannot right. pick anyone but Mr. Data for this character. I bloody loved Data when I was a kid. He was just so cool. He really bloody was. Like just Brent Spiner's interpretation of the character is just, it's, you know, it is, it is a kind of a, a kind of a Spock situation. Like, but when you watch how Brent Spiner played him, just it's brilliant, like the you know the movement of the character, how he talks, how like all like thanks be to God they got rid of the kind of the jokey thing from the first season very quickly, like because that could have got real old real fast, like but like as a character through his you know his exploration of kind of you know trying to become more human and things like that, it just works so well. Like I love you know with the stuff of Picard when he's doing kind of the plays and all that kind of thing, and like you know working Picard on that. It's just so good. Like, there's so many great date episodes as well. Like, when you think of, like, Brothers is a flipping phenomenal episode, like, you know, where he plays all three characters in it, like. And, sorry, Sean, I think you're about to jump in there. I'm just, like, I just want to agree with you, basically. Like, Brothers was... So, Brent Spiner. Some of his emotional episodes... Hmm. Now, are awkward. Yes, I fully agree with you on that. Right, yeah. Thank you for, thank you yeah. for saying that because I was like, uh, but Brothers wasn't one of them. No. You know, which is, and he had so much heavy lifting to do in that episode. He had data, obviously. Um, and if you think, by the way, you're escaping this recording without doing what you know I'm going to ask you to do, you have, this, is my, this is my couple of minutes warning. All right. This is my couple of minutes warning. Now, he also plays Lore, who is, yes. Lore is, of course, data with emotion uh, before generations of course and it's it's a hard role to sell because everything about it is wrong it's off you know it's data but why is data making these facial expressions why is data saying these things and so it's a hard role to sell well i think most of the time he sells lore very very well but and, and it's chalk and cheese with mm. data and lore like when he plays lore there's a smirk on his face and it's it feels like it's permanently there when he plays Data, it's not there. And it's just this wonderful, emotionless thing that he has. But with Lore, I don't know how the hell he does it, but like every time Lore is there, it's just, you just know there's something right behind the eyes. This 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 hatred that he has for everything. And it's it just, it comes across so well. Yeah. Um, like he just, he just sounds like, Descent is brilliant. Data lore, everyone was still fighting. Same again, yeah. same first season again. So everyone's still finding their feet. Um, yeah. But yeah, so maybe do what? Maybe Brothers is the best example of this. It is. Yeah. Um, it really is. Like yeah. Like in Picard, I thought he played Data 
very, very well, which, you know, should be a given. But if you think about it, it's been 20 years since any of these people have played these roles. It's completely understandable. The things that, We're talking the same amount of time, you know, more time, in fact, Ricardo Montalban playing Khan, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was not crazy about Alton and Nigo Soon. Um, it wasn't, it was a bit more muted. And I just thought that it could have used either a bit more like Nunez yeah. Soon. Um, I suppose actually I, I'm forgetting about Eric Soon. Yes. Enterprise. There's um, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of songs going out. Go, isn't, yeah, there's a lot a of very, songs. A very narrow gene pool as well. I mean, so, every yeah. single male member of the family could like, you know, we could all pass the facial, you know, security lockout. But like, there's two, like, there's two brilliant season two episodes. And I've, as I've discussed you before, I have a, a wonderful love of, of The Next Generation season two, despite its bad press. I love it. But there's two, like, you know, you look at Measure of a Man, and we all know it's the ultimate date episode. He's bloody brilliant in it. And it's just, you know, how he kind of plays somebody who kind of, you know, has, you know, basically is going to be dismantled. He's going to be destroyed, but, you know, he has to try and, you know, fight his corner and all that. But my favorite data scene, Strange of the Three Contained Data, is peak performance when they're involved in war games and Riker and crew have to go over to the Hathaway, I think it is, wherever it is. Mm-hmm. And I just love the fact that, you know, data has been beaten in the game of Stratagema by the by the strategist who's working with them. And he basically suffers a crisis of confidence. Now, it's all, it's all a setup for Picard's wonderful speech of, you know, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose and all this. But what I love about it is that data just has this way of kind of, it, it, it's a perfect, it's a Spock thing. Like, as you correctly said earlier on, like when you compare data and Spock, like they're effectively the same person. And it's just the way data just rationalizes everything. And the way, he, the way he kind of overthinks as well. And it's so bloody funny that he's, as an android, the way he just completely overthinks situations. It's like that. But it is, like there's there's some early, you know, think there's some oh, early episodes where everyone is, look, everyone is clunky, you know, Patrick, oh, the whole yeah. lot of them. And yeah, but surprisingly, you know, think of, you know, by the time we get to measure of a man, you know, and just think of how, you know, how, he had really become data at that point. He was obviously data from the beginning, but mm. the data that we then saw for the rest of next gen and into the movies, even though obviously it changes a bit in the movies. Um, iconic, iconic. But Joseph, I need to lock out a computer. Could you do anything to help me here? <laughs> Why are you making me do this stuff? <laughs> okay, right. Um, for those of you listening in listening land, I am I'm going to look right at the screen and I'm going to cover my eyes. And Sean, you can verify I'm going to do this. I do not have a piece of paper anywhere in my hands. I have nothing anywhere, right? So I'm going to watch. I'm covering my eyes right now. I don't know why I'm saying that out loud because you can't see this. Only I, Sean I, I, can see this. I can confirm his eyes are covered. Right. Okay, right. Cover my eyes. Oh, I can't yeah. block off the microphone, right? So why don't you cannot... use one hand to cover your eyes? <laughs> and then that would then not block the microphone. No, it's fine. I've got... I've, I've got... You can, you can still hear me perfectly, right? I can hear yes, crystal clear. Right, okay, here we go. <clears throat> so this is from the episode of The Next Generation called Brothers, when uh, Data's locking out the computer and there was this ginormous access code that was used to protect the enterprise. Back in the days when I was completely aiding everything to do with Star Trek, I needed to learn this for no reason other than just to learn it. 
So 173-4673-21476, Charlie 32, 7897776, 643, Tango 732, Victor 731178888, 732-476-7897643, 76. Boom. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Um, Absolutely. First first goal as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, like, that's, oh that's impressive. Like, you, think of who you're talking to here, Joe. I, I commend you for that. No, no one, should, no, no one should commend anyone for knowing that. Um, it's not cool that I know that. Um, <laughs> I, and, and even to this day, I still don't know how the hell I managed to actually write all that down and somehow be able to actually remember it. Because oh, Jesus Christ, there's a lot of there's a lot of letters in that. I'll tell you one thing. Thank God I don't lock my work computer with that. I'd be typing for a flipping age in a day. Um, Sean, that is it. That's our ten, our ten characters that we've picked. It was a good, actual kind of um, yeah. kind of cross section of all of them. The only sh- what do we leave out? Then we left out we left Enterprise. Out Enterprise, unfortunately, yeah. We got Lower TOS Deck. And Spock. We got Disco with Pike, kind of. Uh, we got lo- uh, did we get lower. We didn't get Lower Decks actually. Um, yeah, Enterprise and Lower had, Decks. We left out. My sixth would have been Mariner, but I wanted to get. Uh-huh. I really wanted to get Laris in there. Um, mm. I, have a, I have an awful lot of love for Mariner and all of the like Brotherford, they're all fucking brilliant. Obviously, I have a special collection to Boiler, and if you would like to know what that is, have a look at my OnlyFans. Joseph, <laughs> thank you very much for being the wonderful god creature that you are. Thank you, Sean, very much. So, guys, that is our episode done. We will be back hopefully next week with Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1. Until then, I've been your host, Joe Hurley. And I have been Sean, and I am not at all apprehensive about trying to find five episodes each from TNG Season 1, but wish us luck! Let's just discuss Skin of Evil multiple times, and we'll get through this. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye!